Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown. Where the plum purple haze. The one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers. Inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and a culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. The tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 26 of the Brown County Hour. This is Dave Seastrom and Vera Grubbs, and we are pleased to bring you our latest show. It's been a very busy month here in our studio at the Brown County History Center, and we are happy to announce we'll be moving into our brand new studio in the newly completed History Center when it opens at the beginning of October. We've had a long relationship with these fine people at the Historical Society, and all of us are looking forward to working together on future projects. In our first segment, we have a conversation with Jeb Allen and his bandmates, Slats Klug and Picker Dan Bilger. We had a lot of fun bringing Jeb and his band into our studio for a live recording, and in this segment, we'll be playing his tune, Lay It on the Line. Chris Curtin has one of his succinct poems for us called Dinosaurus. And Rick Fettig has a story about the three little pigs in Brown County. Next, we have a conversation with noted field recording engineer Jeff Keller. Jeff spent two and a half decades recording 3,000 birds of North America. His recordings are archived at the Cornell University's Laboratory of Orthonology and have become part of everyday life in the form of phone apps, guides for birders, and TV productions. with the Brown County Hour and this is Dave Seastrom. We're awful lucky tonight, aren't we? This has been pretty exciting. We got Jeb Allen here. Along with him are two local favorites as well, Slats Klug and Dan Bilger. Really love your stuff, Jeb. Enjoyed listening to it all week and now to hear three live performances here in our studio, it's just outstanding. You're very autobiographical in your tunes. I assume that's no accident. You're, you're drawing from actual childhood memories. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, I write about what, what I live, yeah. So, how did you get started in music? They're all stories, some of them from long ago. I've always liked music, and I like all kinds of music. I got my first guitar when I was 13. When I was 17, I had a friend, Mike Nichols, that helped me to learn chords and sing. 
and I had written several songs before I'd even learned to play, and uh, that made it a lot easier to write songs from there. How did you keep track of the songs that you wrote if you didn't play an instrument? Oh, they were always in my head, I guess. Yeah. You said you started writing early, so what brought yeah. that on, and how'd that develop? I think I was probably 19 when I wrote my first song. I don't know, I just had songs going through my head, and... It just came natural to me. You know, I'd be out working in the hay or something, and I'd just humming along, and I'd have a song. Got to ask, and forgive me for this question, but were you as much of a stinker as your songs kind of indicate? I was probably worse, if you ask my mother. My mother could tell you some stories, and she will. Well, you don't look any worse for the wear. She's pretty tough. I think it was because of me. So uh, we've also got Dan Bilger here, Picker Dan, very famous local musician who's involved in uh, two of the most prolific bands, White Lightning Boys and uh, Indiana Boys. So uh, the boy thing, I mean, this is like (laughs) how you spend your time now, huh? Well, here I'm playing with a couple of men here tonight. (laughs) (laughs) So you've moved up a half a click? Yeah. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. You know, we've all enjoyed your music for a long time, and it's, it's nice to see this combination to hear what you guys are doing and yeah. and of course Slats Klug is like I don't know the author of our theme song the uh, you know the inspiration for uh, all music Brown County for years and years and a great local presence how are you doing Slats I'm doing well working on a new record that Jeb's singing one of the cuts of oh got to play on Jeb's record and liked his voice a whole lot and I thought if I ever make a record I asked him would you want to sing on it and he said okay so that came to pass. Glad it did. But Slats and uh, Picker Dan both played on uh, my album. I'd like to call them Gunslingers because if it was Wild West, they'd be slinging some guns, but they're slinging instruments now. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, you guys sound really good together. So you guys got any gigs lined up in the near future? You know, I play quite a few private parties and hog roast, and those are always a lot of fun because you can have fun get a trailer out there and sit on the trailer, eat some great food. Well, you heard it here, folks. If you're having a hog roast, here's the folks you want to hire. Yeah, you can you can find me on Facebook, uh, The Jeb Allen Band, or jeballen.com. That was the next but, question. Know, yeah, I've got, that... like, a gig at the Pine Room. I think it's June 24th. We've got a lot of things riding, but I haven't got any confirmed dates back. But if you like us on Facebook, I'll put it on there and let you know when the shows are. So, Jeb, tell us about this first song. Okay, uh, Lay It on the Line. I wrote that song probably when I was 19. Had a great job doing masonry work. Somebody broke your heart and you wrote a song about it, is what it sounds Yeah, I think it had something to do with it. But I was carrying hod and laying block at that time. And you uh, tie up a string on each corner of your building and you lay your block to the line. So I came up with that as I was working in yeah, I think there's a little bit of heartbreak there, but I was able to work through it. <laughs> Still with us? Yeah. Well, I ain't done nothing wrong as far as I can see. So tell me, honey, why you testing me? Your girl, I was in line. And if you want me to, girl, I'll tell you one more time. Honey, I love you, and I will be true. 
This is Chris Curtin with a poem called Dinosaurus. Once upon a time lived dinosaurs, great big creatures who were here way before us. They met with misfortune and are with us no more. The biggest of all was the brontosaurus, who had a long neck and lived in the forest. The most terrifying of all was the tyrannosaurus, who had big sharp teeth and was carnivorous. If we didn't move very quickly, he would overpower us and likely devour us. But the most confounding of all was the contrary clitoris, who you could call all day and it would never come, but do just as it pleased and completely ignore us. But we let nothing detour us. We will do anything to make it adore us. But no matter how much we implore us, in the end it simply abhor us and neglect and ignore us. (laughs) I I know some of the words. (laughs) You have to make them rhyme, you know.
Here's Rick with a little bedtime story about the three little pigs in the big bad woods. There were three little pigs. One lived at the edge of the Girl Scout camp near the lake and just loved Tuesdays and Fridays when they took out the garbage and he could clean up what spilled over around the dumpster. The second pig lived near the edge of a quiet gravel road. There would often be some fast food scraps that got tossed out of a car window and of course the occasional roadkill. The third little pig lived in the forest where there was always plenty of acorns, truffles, and treats under the leaves and under the edges of the fallen, rotten trees and limbs. One day, the big bad wolf went to each of these three locations and was overheard by each respective pig as the wolf talked to his sidekick. I'm going to huff and puff, get a huge backhoe with jaws and some dumpsters, and I'm going to demo this entire Girl Scout camp. I'm going to put in a parking lot and a ramp into the lake so all the wealthy people can come and enjoy the lake. The second pig heard the wolf talk about the gravel road. I'm going to huff and puff, get in some dozers, tear out this gravel, and I'll put in some drainage ditches and blacktop the entire road. It will be smoother to drive on and less dust. The pig wondered, well, what about upkeep? What about water runoff and surely more traffic and noise? Then the third little pig heard the big bad wolf talking about the forest. I'm going to huff and puff and bring in some chainsaws. We'll cut out 60% of the timber, put in some 30-foot wide roads, bring in some heavy equipment and big trucks, and clean these trees right out of here. I'm working on a great deal with a pallet builder, and the state will make millions, and these people will finally get to see some big sky. And the three pigs all got together one evening over some fermented corn. What will we do? What can we do? Where could we possibly go? Where in the entire area might we go and be able to rest our chinny-chin-chins? This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour, and it's my pleasure to introduce Jeff Keller, who is Cornell's premier field recordist with over 3,000 bird recordings in their archives. And we're here to discuss forest fragmentation as part of the DNR's new forest plan and its effect on songbirds in Indiana. Jeff, nice to see you this evening. Thank you, Dave. It's nice to be here. So, please, discuss how the fragmentation of the forest canopy affects songbirds in North America. Well, first, it might be important to point out that there have been multiple studies in this regard. People have been studying this for decades. It all started back in 1966 with the breeding bird surveys. This was the first concrete data that people were gathering that showed a decline in songbirds throughout the continent. The studies that I'm specifically referring to was a five-state comprehensive study published in the 1995 March issue of the journal Science. The five states included Missouri, Arkansas, Wisconsin, Illinois, and Indiana. Interestingly, Indiana University's leading ornithologist at the time, Dr. Donald Whitehead, participated in this particular study. The results were conclusive. The more you open up the canopy of a closed canopy forest, the more you allow greater surface area for the brown-headed cowbird to parasitize the nests 
of unsuspecting songbirds. Now, how do they do that? Basically, the female cowbird will keep an eye and watch for an opportunity to locate the nest of the unsuspecting songbird. When the songbird is away from the nest, the female will go over and perhaps remove eggs that are already in the nest, or she may just decide to lay one of her own eggs right alongside the other eggs. This brown-headed cowbird is generally a larger species, and that larger chick outcompetes the rest of the other nestlings for the available food source. Well, it sounds like the effect of this is that the songbirds that did the nest building don't get to have offspring. Is that correct? That is a true statement. The number of offspring are either reduced or eliminated. This results in a dramatic decline of dozens of our forest-loving songbirds that migrate up here every year from the tropics to raise their next generation. Well, tell us a little bit of the history of this brown-headed cowbird. The brown-headed cowbird is indeed native to North America. However, its regular breeding range was out on the Great Plains. It was formerly called the buffalo bird, and with good reason. The brown-headed cowbird evolved to follow the herds of buffalo. That meant that they had to outsource their nest building and rearing of their young to other species on the prairie. They could not afford to stay in one spot to raise their own nestlings. However, it must also be said, regular songbirds on the prairie evolved with the cowbird for tens of thousands of years and developed behavioral patterns to cope with the parasitism of the brown-headed cowbird. Prairie species do not fly directly to their nest, or the unsuspecting prairie songbird will recognize a cowbird egg, and some of those species throw them out. Other prairie species will enter their nest in a stealthful manner. They do not fly directly to the nest site. They land at some distance away and walk to the nest site. So if you're a bird that has been used to a dense forest canopy, you don't need that kind of stealth. That is correct. And this is the advantage that the cowbird is taking once the canopy is opened up. It can now see this nesting activity. That is also correct because the birds east of the Mississippi have had no previous contact with brown-headed cowbirds until the last 200 years or so when European settlers came over and started removing large segments of the forest canopy. And the vast clear cuts, yes. This then set the stage for the cowbirds to greatly expand their range from the Great Plains clear to the east coast. And every time one opens up the forest canopy, you allow the cowbird an unfair advantage. They will get a new foothold in areas that were previously not available to them. Now we pause for station identification. Brown County Hour is underwritten by Riverlight Yoga, where you will find expert instruction in a completely equipped, newly enlarged studio. We offer a variety of classes with individual instruction a specialty. Gift certificates in any denomination are available. See riverlightyoga.com for full information. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at 
wfhb.org. Welcome back to episode 26 of the Brown County Hour. Opening up this segment, we have a conversation with Taylor Roberts, who, along with her teammates, won the national We the People competition. This is the second year in a row Brown County has won this national championship, and Taylor is here to tell us all about it. Tramp Star returns with a poem titled, Poor Kids. We have another installment of the land and the lore of Brown County with our friend Bill Land called Trains. We're always glad to present the latest poem from Gunther Flum, and this time we have Brown County May Day Pest Parade. And finally, we bring you Jeb Allen's tune, Long Lonesome Train. Hi, this is David Seastrom with the Brown County Hour, and it's my privilege to be interviewing Taylor Roberts, who is a junior high school student, has won the national championship of We the People, which is a contest that demonstrates mastery of the Constitution. So this is the second year in a row this team has won. I mean, you guys are on fire. So tell me about the preparation that it takes to get ready for one of these competitions. I've been in We the People since August. I had to fill out an application to be in the class last year um, when I was in seventh grade. And we studied from August. We have a textbook. It's a We the People textbook. And we study um, from that textbook. And we're divided into six different units, each dealing with different parts of the Constitution. Do you have a favorite part of the Constitution? Well, I'm in Unit 5, and I deal with mainly the First Amendment and due process. So the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and due process of law. Well, so you made a trip to Washington, D.C. I assume this is your first time there? Yes, it was. Did you get a chance to like go to the Smithsonian or do anything else? Or? Yes. Uh, we competed um, mainly in the morning. There was three days of competition. Oh. And the first two days, all, I believe there were nine other schools that competed. And then the third day, only the top three schools competed. And we were one of the top three schools we found out Saturday evening. So after we competed in the morning on um, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday, we did a lot of sightseeing. We saw a lot of memorials, and um, we went to the Smithsonian's. Which part of the Smithsonian did you get to see? The air and space, right. and then the um, Smithsonian of American History and Natural History. I went to the, because we divided into groups, and okay. I went to the Natural History and American History. Yeah, all the big stuffed animals. Yeah. Right. Well, uh, what an really out, outstanding opportunity for you. Yes. So what's next? Can you compete uh, at the next level next year, or...? Not next year, but I know when you're a senior, I believe, at the high school in Brown County, okay. you, there's a competition, but it's not associated with the class that I'm in now. It's a different a high school at a high school level. Is the, it's different than the junior high level. Well, so you got four years to, uh, to practice. Yeah. Then, huh? <laughs> so what was your favorite part of the whole experience? First off, how did you travel to Washington, we D.C.? We flew there. All right. Had you been on an airplane no, before? No, I hadn't. I hadn't been. Did you get a window seat? Yes, the first time there, I did. So why don't you explain how the competition actually works? First of all, I wanted to say that we won the state competition okay. on December 17th. And basically, as I said, we're divided into units, and we study our unit, and we become an expert of mine was the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and due process. There's a hearing question, and we write that out, 
and a hearing like you're a in hearing court? question like the, you're in court or they ask a question about freedom of religion and then there is two other people in my unit and we each answer different bullets of the question we present it to a panel of judges which are legal scholars lawyers um, political teachers well that's got to be intimidating it's it's intimidating but I have to say I've gotten used to it and really at nationals I maybe the first day I was nervous but I mean of course I was nervous but I wasn't like shaking or anything okay and so we present the hearing question and the hearing question lasts four minutes when we're done the panel of judges asks us questions just follow-up questions about the, the hearing question so how much preparation does all this take I mean now you started in August and you how how many days a week did you devote to this I stayed after school a lot with Mr. Potts almost um, I would say two or three days a week and I studied a lot outside of class, and then every day in class we would work on our hearing questions, which we, we just called them speeches, and worked on our follow-up questions. Just So this is every day of the week, then? It was, yes. Wow. Was there any question that you felt like maybe it was a little dicey and you, and you pulled it out anyway? Or did you feel like you were on top of it all because of all this excellent training? I think that our training was definitely good. I can't remember any specific questions that I didn't feel like we answered well, but I'm sure there was. Did they wear black robes? <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> okay, I was just kidding. Okay. <laughs> what was one of the questions? Yeah, what, what would be one of the questions? you recall one of the questions that they asked and then okay, what your so answer there were, was? There were three hearing questions. Okay. Freedom of religion, freedom of speech, and due process of law. And just an example for the freedom of speech, a question would be, should a Nazi... Should Nazi members be able to host a rally in a Jewish neighborhood? That's just an example of a question that would be asked. What would your answer be to that? I would say that according to the ruling in um, the NSP versus Skokie, they do have the right to um, host a rally in a Jewish neighborhood because uh, they have the freedom of speech guaranteed in the First Amendment. However, I can see according to the Brandenburg test, what's likely to happen is violence and therefore it should be limited. Explain the Brandenburg test. Okay, the Brandenburg test was established in the case of Brandenburg versus Ohio. It's also known as the imminence lawless action test. What's likely to happen? And the initial ruling was that the KKK was allowed to host um, some sort of a rally, even though it was likely to lead to violence. Even though it leads to violence? Yes. Well, that's interesting. You know, for what it's worth, Skokie, that trial, the Nazis were represented by a Jewish attorney from the ACLU. That fact has always blown my mind. (laughs) You know, that people believe strongly enough in freedom that they're willing to put their own feelings aside. And I suppose you got a lot of that out of this experience. Yes, I did. Hi, I'm Tramp Starr. You don't know about me without you've read the writings of a fellow named Carl Wilson, but that ain't no matter. Carl was a writer, a goat farmer, a boxer, and an all-round swell guy. Good friend of mine. Carl used to publish some of my stuff under the title Jokes and Jingles from Curly Shingles by Tramp Star. Curly Shingles was the name he had given his little old cabin. The shake shingles had all kind of curled up on him. Tramp Star is, well, that's me. Poor kids. The saddest sight in the world to see is a child raised scientifically whose parents know just exactly what the poor little tyke should eat and not. 
and everything you can bet that they can eat is some form of grain or hay, and the food they crave so very much is something always they mustn't touch. Poor little kids, raised on prescription, consisting mainly of restriction. Oh, pity the little modern kid who cannot eat like his parents did, can't raid the old refrigerator for hunks of cheese or cold potato, who minds his mama and his popper and looks and dines like a grasshopper on foods that's kinfolks to alfalfi. Poor little Ben and Rose and Ralphie and all the starved kids everywhere who were raised with scientific care. Oh, pity the kids, for goodness sakes, who have missed the joy of belly aches, the cramp that rares and tears and rages from apples at in early stages, or hot dogs, mustardy and sizzy, washed down with pop all pink and fizzy. For nothing sweeter, I am certain, than belly ache when it quits hurting. Poor kids, their punishment's terrific when parents feed them scientific. Oh, could I try out my appliance, my backwoods substitute for science? I'd throw their spinach to a pony and feed them on dumplings and bologna and watch them grow up fine and biggy, just like a healthy calf or piggy. And when they got quite strong and snappy, I'd send them home to kick their pappy, poor little kids so pale and saddish, raised up like squashes or a radish. This is Bill Land, the Brown County Hour, coming to tell you about the land and the lore of Brown County. The train that went right by my house started way back in 1906. Indianapolis Southern Railroad is a subsidiary of the Illinois Central Railroad, establishing a route all the way from Indianapolis to Effingham. It carried passengers and goods all the way over to Helmsburg. D.C. Steel had a summer home called Singing Winds. And this is where they went to the depot and then on down to good old Nashville. The best experience I ever had with this tremendous train was what I called the Cosmic Train. The Indiana Railroad had taken over and improved the train to haul all sorts of freight, but they had four locomotives. The whole train was overloaded. You could tell it was going way too fast. Vibration, more vibration. And we sat there and we thought we were being lifted off by a UFO. This vibration was incredible. This train is very unique. It has to go only through the northern part of Brown County, through the unglaciated part, the flatlands, headed over toward good old Bloomington across a high trestle and through a long tunnel under what we call Tunnel Road. But this is the important thing. It passes through 12 miles of Brown County, some of the scenic, most beautiful places in the whole planet. And guess what? Around Christmas, they bring the Santa train. Santa Claus comes to Helmsburg, and that is a evening to remember with all your wonderful children. And it also occasionally hauls three cars for educational purposes, too. The Indiana Railroad that took over, you can see that by the color of those beautiful locomotives, those red, red, red locomotives. That makes that cosmic train and the whole Indiana Railroad a very special experience. Come out sometime and, and, and see the wonderful train, red locomotives uh, coming through the, the valley there right by Bean Blossom Overlook and experience Brown County in, in the most magical way. You can come down Railroad Road and see the train, or you can come over by Helensburg and see the train, or Trevlack. It's one of the most modern things in all of Brown County, but it's still worth a time to spend with a wonderful cosmic train.
Brown County May Day Pest Parade by Gunther Flum. We have found that April showers, the month of May, will bring out flowers, which also brings out birds and bees, flies, mosquitoes, ticks and fleas, snakes and spiders, and other creatures that bite and sting with different features. So in the country every year, there's many creatures we all fear that every spring give us a reason to dread this time of year each season. While you may have your city park, but in the country after dark, you must tread light and must be wary of many things, both wild and scary. For yes, it's true that in the spring the flowers bloom and birds will sing, but in the country we all know that with the melting of the snow that other creatures now will stir, of claws and stingers, scales and fur. And yes, we know what poets say, but we all dread the month of May. Of course there's flowers in the trees, but creatures there can hide with ease and through the day and into night poison you with just one bite and not a gun or bigger knife protects you or can save your life since they ain't there to rob or mug while you was bit by a snake or bug. So yes, the days are getting longer, but bugs and beasts are getting stronger as woods fill up each May with pests and all of them unwanted guests. For now they all feel free to roam throughout our gardens, fields, and home. But to our friends from in the city, we don't want your scorn, no pity. For country folk find some relief since we all share the same belief that in the country with our skill, we hunt and eat each thing we kill, which in the country far and wide keeps down on human homicide. Just the same, you city slickers might want to stay out of our woods in May. We've been known to kill and eat each other over the best spot to hunt morel mushrooms. Yours truly, Gunther Flum. And now, more music from Jeb Allen. So Jeb, tell us about Lost Lonesome Train. Lost Lonesome Train is a title track to my new album. Yeah, I wrote it several years ago, probably 15 years ago, and it's probably the only ballad song I've ever written. From my house, you can hear the train uh, when it comes through. You can hear the whistle and the clatter of the tracks. When we were younger, we used to, about the time you heard it at my house, we would run and try to catch a train over at the train trestle at Lake Lemon, and we end up hopping the train and riding it to Helmsburg. <laughs> oh, I bet your mama loved that. <laughs> my mama just loved it. <laughs>
for station identification. Brown County Hour is underwritten by Riverlight Yoga, where you will find expert instruction in a completely equipped, newly enlarged studio. We offer a variety of classes with individual instruction a specialty. Gift certificates in any denomination are available. See riverlightyoga.com for full information. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio WFHB at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 in Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Welcome back to the final segment of Episode 26 of the Brown County Hour, we begin this segment with another essay from David Seastrom, followed by part two of our conversation with Jeff Keller. Mike Buby has a little treat for us with his singing debut called Sweet Violets. Jeb Allen and his band performed The Whistle Blows, and we close the show with some insights about democracy from our very own Rick Fetty. This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour. It was a hard winter here in Brown County. Actually, it was a hard winter all over North America. Here in Hill Country, it seemed like winter never let up. We had lots of severe cold and a huge amount of snow. We also had more school cancellations than anyone can remember. It was hard to get around, even with four-wheel drive, and many events were canceled, adding to the sense of isolation winter can bring. All the while, folks dreamed of warmer days to come and hung on through the worst of it. But nothing takes the sting out of winter like finally putting it behind us. And now the memory of all that bitter cold and darkness is fading into the light and warmth and smiles abound on every face. The air is filled with the songs of birds and frogs singing out their biological imperative and our nights are filled with their symphony of life. The tide has finally turned and we are now immersed in the full glory of spring. The yards and the meadows are filled with flowers. Seeds are being scratched into the gardens, and folks are finding the first mushrooms. The forest is fresh with new growth, and unmistakable smell of spring fills the air. I think we're all appreciating spring a little more than usual, like somehow by enduring the winter we just had, we've earned it. As true as that might be, every spring is glorious, and here we are enjoying another one. Across the world, people everywhere celebrate the coming of spring. From the cherry blossom festivals to the return of the farmer's market, there's lots to be happy about as we all look forward to the good times ahead. 
Here in Brown County, we celebrate the season by having the Spring Blossom Parade. The idea of a parade might conjure a vision of giant helium-filled balloons, huge marching bands, or elaborate floats representing department stores. Scads of bagpipers come to mind, strutting their stuff amidst throngs of happy parade-goers while winding their way down miles of boulevards. Well, unless you count the produce section at the IGA, our stores don't even have departments. But we do have spirit, in this case, spring spirit, and there's plenty of it to be sure. Friends and school kids make their own floats, and most bands that play here don't even know how to march. They're too busy picking to pay attention to their feet. On the appointed day, while the parade forms in the high school parking lot, young and old gather on the streets of Nashville in excited anticipation. Floats of every description are lined up. We have business groups, scouts, both girls and boys, cubs and brownies, churches, cops and veterans, and just about anybody that wants to join in. A signal is given, and the whole procession makes its way through the streets of Nashville. The town is filled with happy revelers, and everyone is waving at one another. Sometime in the early 80s, I was in the parade. I led the Helmsburg Indians, better known as Cub Scout Pack 192. I have a great photo that shows this group of meandering, distracted boys marching down the street, carrying their banner. I'm the tall one in the photo with his arms outstretched, trying to keep them all together. I remember all those smiling faces and waving hands as we marched for spring on that warm, sunny day. And here it is some 30 years later, and the little boys in the photo are all grown men. And now it's their little kids who will be marching in this year's parade alongside the rest of us. Not wanting to miss out on such a fine opportunity, the Brown County Hour has put together its own offering for this year's festivity. The crew was riding on our ad hoc float, which consists of Rick's old trailer with WFHB Spot the Firehouse Dog and our own infamous Brown County Hour radio outhouse. It was a wonderful day, and we hope you had a chance to attend. Our float fits right in with the spirit of the event. A small group of locals sharing who they are with the whole community as we all celebrate spring in Brown County. What could be better than a parade? This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour. See you next time. So this contiguous forest land that is Yellowwood and Morgan Monroe State Forest is the largest green space left for these birds to conduct their breeding activities. And now that the new forest plan is about to be implemented and is in fact being implemented, what you're saying is this directly threatens a variety of songbird species. Now you mentioned one in particular, the Cerulean Warbler. You want to talk about that bird? The cerulean warbler is perhaps the poster child of all the migratory songbirds that are suffering the severest decline of them all. Starting back in 1966 when the surveys began, 80% of the cerulean warbler population is gone. They are basically extinct from vast areas of their former breeding range. But not here in Brown County. Absolutely correct. This part of South Central Indiana, as you have mentioned, has the third largest intact remnant of closed canopy left in the Midwest. This brings up a point. 
There are many fragmented and isolated pieces of forest canopy throughout Indiana, but those fragmented pieces are not big enough to support a viable population of songbirds. These fragmented pieces of forest canopy are in great need of the surplus songbirds that are produced in the contiguous forest of South Central Indiana. These forests, Yellowwood State Forest, Morgan Monroe, Brown County State Park, Hoosier National Forest, Deem Wilderness Area, this particular area is a source for new songbirds to travel to some of those lesser desirable sites that are too small to support a viable population on their own. If we take out portions of this particular example of contiguous canopy and degrade its ability to produce new songbirds, that will result in a loss of songbirds in all of these other smaller remnants because they no longer will have a source for new birds coming to those small fragmented areas. So in other words, if you don't have an area that's large enough, you simply don't produce the next generation. Eventually, they die out. Unbelievable. And that is why the cerulean warbler is absent in vast areas of its former breeding range. They are in a dramatic tailspin of population decline, as are many other species. But as it stands today, our unmolested forest has a healthy population of these birds, is that correct? Absolutely. The cerulean warbler is a relatively common species at this moment in south central Indiana. Anyone who knows the song of this bird and visits the proper habitat will have no trouble in finding a cerulean warbler or multiple cerulean warblers in any given morning. Try that in Tipton County or Marion County. Right. No forest, no birds. Correct. If a cerulean warbler winds up at Eagle Creek Park, it's an anomaly. I mean, it's like, oh my God. But well, yet, that's the that was a former breeding range. But what you're saying now is that if there is a cerulean warbler in Eagle Creek Park, it's because it was born in Brown County. You got it. These other fragmented areas are referred to as a sink. That is the technical term. They're too small to be viable populations on their own. They need incoming songbirds that are produced in areas that produce a surplus of these birds. And that's what we have right here in South Central Indiana. So Jeff, you've outlined a pretty grim situation for all of these different songbirds. And all of us do love them, but why should we care about this loss of a handful of songbirds in state forest lands? That is a very good question, Dave. And actually, it goes way beyond songbirds. Right now, our planet is facing a mass extinction across the board. Amphibians are being hit perhaps the hardest. One third of all amphibian species on the planet are either threatened or endangered with extinction. Our songbirds, many of them, dozens of them, are in a population decline a tailspin that has been going on for decades. Once you start removing pieces of the web of life, you affect and send out ripples throughout the entire web of life. A decreased biodiversity is ultimately going to affect the quality of life for humans on this planet. 
there could be unintended results that we have no comprehension of what those consequences may be in the future. Jeff, thank you so much for coming in this evening. I really appreciate it. This is Dave Seastrom with the Brown County Hour. Hi, this is Mike Buby with the Brown County Hour, and I've come across in my archives a couple of funny little poems. We'll call this next one, No Rhyme or Reason. There once was a farmer who took a young miss in back of the barn where he gave her a lecture on horses and chickens and eggs and told her she had such beautiful manners that suited a girl of her charms a girl that he wanted to take in his washing and ironing and then if she did they would get married and raise lots of sweet violets and we're back with Jeb Allen. Jeb, tell us about Whistle Blows. Well, that's probably one of the latest songs that I've written. I don't know how to explain it. I, I was sitting on my couch, and I heard the train whistle from the train, the coal train going by. And I had been working on a tune. I, I had the music, but I didn't have the words. And when I heard that, that whistle, I'll just write a song about this. In the verse, it goes, uh, uh, There's a restless feeling coming on. I look, get up, look outside my door. A few seconds later, I hear that train and that lonesome whistle blows. That's kind of how I got that one. I remember when I was just four or five. Couldn't wait to get out of this house. I drove my mama crazy most all the time. Yes, she never could figure out.
She raised a boy with a troubled mind When she hears that train She thinks of me When that whistle blows She cries When that whistle blows She cries This is Rick Fettig with the Brown County Hour. In light of our upcoming elections, I'd like to make an analogy. I'd like to compare vegetables to democracy. Now, everybody knows that your vegetables are good for you, and most people think democracy is good for you. And on the vegetable side, you have your vegans, and you have your, like, mostly vegetarians, but maybe they eat some fish or some chicken, maybe eggs. And then you have the guys like me. Like the other day when we were out to eat and I was taking my sandwich with me, Vera had to remind me to take my greens because they're good for me. (laughs) (laughs) And then on the political side, you have your activists who are out there hustling all the time. You have your faithful who never miss a vote. And then you have some people that need encouragement. There's different kinds of level and commitment and participation. Okay, now I want you to get quiet with me for a second. Think for a minute. And think of democracy. And think of vegetables. Think of your vote. And think of a particular vegetable. And I want you to think of a turnip. Think of your vote. And think of a turnip. You're both very unique, special, well-rounded, and colorful. There's your vote, and there's the turnip. There's your vote and the turnip. Get it? Turn up and vote. It's good for you. And now, more music from Jeb Allen. Yeah. 
Thanks for tuning in to episode 26 of the Brown County Hour, recorded in our studio at the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and broadcast from WFHB the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m., and rebroadcast the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. You can stream this or any of our shows at our website, browncountyhour.com. And while you're there, take a look at our Woodwatch page, devoted to informing the public about the situation our forest lands are experiencing. And be sure to like us on Facebook. This show was produced by Jeff Foster and Pam Reader and co-produced by Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, and Dave Seastrom. Executive producer for WFHB is Allison Bektesh. Once again, it's my privilege to thank our friend Slats Klug for our theme music. listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County Oh